The very essence of our life as conscious beings consists of something which cannot be communicated except by hints, similes, metaphors, and the use of those emotions. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 43, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. After Hours with Peter S. Williams. Good morning, everyone. Pants with Jack is your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Andrew, Matt, and myself break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we've been talking about love and we worked our way through C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. And after that, we had Ecumenism Month where we spoke to people from diverse religious backgrounds who all love Lewis. And we're now in Apologetics Month where we're examining some of Lewis's favorite arguments for common sense, theism, and Christianity. And today we're talking about a topic which isn't so often addressed. It's called anti-verificationism. And I have with me today our guide through this topic, someone whose work I've enjoyed ever since this podcast began, Mr. Peter S. Williams. Peter S. Williams is a Christian philosopher and apologist based in Southampton, England. He is the Assistant Professor in Communication and Worldviews at NLA University College in Kristiansand, Norway. Peter is also a trustee of the Christian Evidence Society. He's a Montgomery Trust lecturer and both a mentor and traveling speaker for the European Leadership Forum. And he's authored many books, including Apologetics in 3D, Outgrowing God, A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, Getting at Jesus, Understanding Jesus, and A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, as well as the book which he'll no doubt be referencing today, C.S. Lewis versus The New Atheists, where he discusses this idea of anti-verificationism. Peter S. Williams, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you very much for having me, David. It's great to be with you. And you definitely win the prize for uh, most technical difficulties in getting an interview to happen. <laughs> this is our second time trying to do this. We have gone through basically every single video chat forum, but I think we are finally there. So I'm very excited. Good. Yeah, it's it's been a struggle. The, the tubes between England and the United States on the internet have, have clearly been uh, clogged or broken. But I think I first came across your work when you appeared on William O'Flaherty's podcast. And after I looked you up, I was delighted to discover that your church was just down the street from where I used to live when I was at the University of Southampton. Mm, indeed, yes. And I've been in Southampton since uh, 2001. Uh, so I've been here a, a while, moved here originally to work with a Christian educational charity that was was based here. Uh, through whom I got contacts uh, with the folks in Norway that I now work part-time with in uh, NLA University out in Norway. Mm, wonderful. Yeah, so you, you must have moved there when I was in finishing off my second year of university, I think. <laughs> well, today I'm drinking tea, and because it's Lent and I'm avoiding dairy, that means I'm drinking it with oat milk, which means that it looks like mud, but it actually doesn't taste too bad. Uh, do you have anything to hand? I do. I have a glass of cold milk. <laughs> <laughs> Full of calcium, very good for your teeth. My mum would be very impressed. <laughs> it's 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 skimmed milk, so it's even better for you. <laughs> well, my wife would be horrified. <laughs> I remember the time when I when I came back from the store with skimmed milk, she was horrified. <laughs> well, cheers. Cheers. So would you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your faith journey, and where you discovered Lewis along the way? Oh gosh, yeah. Well, I um I grew up in a in a Christian home. Both my parents were Christians. Um, both my parents were also uh, teachers, 
Uh, they met at Teacher Training College in, in Portsmouth in the early 70s. Uh, and they both trained as science teachers as well. So I, I grew up in a fairly sort of academic atmosphere of a household, one that talked about matters of faith and matters of science uh, and that uh, had books in the house. Uh, amongst the collection of books in the house were a number of books from C.S. Lewis. Um, I mean, I was first introduced to Lewis by my mum reading Chronicles of Narnia uh, to me uh, until I got frustrated enough at the pace of storytelling to kind of take over myself by the time we got to <laughs> Prince Caspian. Uh, <laughs> But then I, I also noticed as I grew up that there were these uh, non-fiction books by, by Lewis. Uh, my dad had a number of, including um, uh, Miracles and Mere Christianity. And uh, I started reading um, the, the non-fiction Lewis books that my dad had. Um, and that really uh, got me into Lewis um, around the time I was sort of in secondary school and I uh, had read a, a lot of Lewis by the time uh, I went off to university um, in Cardiff, initially to do a joint degree in um, music and English literature. Uh, you know, Lewis, of course, professionally taught English literature and wrote a number of uh, still valuable books in that, that field. Um, but I was drawing on Lewis more and more as I I got frustrated with the, the postmodernism of the English department at that time uh, in the, the early 90s. And um, my third course, taking humanities at Cardiff, you take three courses, and I'd chosen philosophy as my third course. And I ended up switching over after my first year to, to full-time philosophy. And um, Lewis was certainly a, a big part of encouraging me in, in that direction having read some of his more philosophical works. Mm -hmm. It's interesting hearing your experience of doing English at university in that time, because I was at high school uh, at that time. And I definitely remember that it, in the in the zeitgeist at the time, there was definitely a move towards no longer reading dead authors. So a lot of a lot of people my age didn't get to read Shakespeare or any of the other classics. Fortunately, mm -hmm. I went to a school where we actually were exposed to that stuff. But yeah, it was it was definitely an odd time in the 90s. English professors at that time that I had at, at Cardiff were sort of teaching Roland Barth, the author is dead. Uh, texts don't have any inherent meaning. They just mean whatever they mean to you. <laughs> kind of, um, which, you know, <laughs> uh, and I vividly remember at the end of year Q&A session with the lecturers, I read out a quote from the the, the third chapter in C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, mm. where he talks about if you claim to have seen through everything, you can't actually see anything. It becomes sort of self-defeating, this claim that texts don't mean anything, which of course is communicated to us by Roland Barthes and other postmodernists through their texts. Are they really making the claims that they're making? Um, if they are, they're claiming not to make any claims that we can get wrong or, or you know, or, or right. Um, so it undermines, you know, the, the meaning of the world. And, and this for, for Roland Barthes was directed not only at, at, at literary text, but at, as he said, at the world as text, at the world as a, a meaningful creation. Um, so he had an anti-theistic uh, uh, agenda in his philosophy there. 
But I was drawing upon C.S. Lewis encountering that postmodern philosophy that I met in the in the English literature course. You know, my my professor at the time um, asked me who had written this quote that I had just quoted as an argument against postmodernism. Well, I, I told him it was you know C.S. Lewis from the Abolition of Man, and he said. Uh, Oh, well, of course, you know, Lewis was writing that at a time in a culture after the, the Second World War where people were looking for certainties. And uh, he basically made a sort of ad hominem argument ag- against uh, Lewis uh, by by pointing to the, um, the assumed uh, intention of the author of the text that I had read to him. which is hilarious because it's both chronological snobbery which lewis fought against and it's a particular form of ad hominem it's basically bolverism not only explaining not only not even responding to the argument and attacking the person but trying to psychoanalyze the person to explain why they come up with such a dumb idea in their opinion in order to defend a philosophy that said texts don't have any inherent meaning and you can't work out the meaning of the text with reference to the author because the author is dead (laughs) Right. Yeah. But but I'm trying to undermine my argument against that by 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 analysing the in, the supposed intention of the author of the text that I had read, <laughs> which is self refuting. Yeah. yeah, and and it's also expressing a philosophy that actually can't even say anything interesting. Right. <laughs> so th- this is a large part of what pushed me towards um, doing philosophy uh, <laughs> at Cardiff. And then um, after that, I I continued on in the philosophy field through an MA at Sheffield and a two-year research uh, degree in MPhil at the University of East Anglia in Norwich um, before I then spent a number of years working as a a student, church-based student worker, um, working with students in Sheffield. Ah, Sheffield, uh, Then I I moved down south in 2001, as I said, to work with a Christian educational charity doing um, philosophy and ethics conferences for for secondary school children in the UK and in state schools. And and through that educational charity, they had contacts with folks out in uh, what is now NLA University, but was just um, Gimla Collin College in, in Christiansand in Norway who as part of their uh, community outreach work for the university um, were setting, uh, set up um, Damaris Norga, which was their, their Damaris sort of version of Damaris UK, the, the charity that I worked for. Um, and through those, those, those contacts, I started doing bits of teaching on the, the study tour that they took to England once a year and then flying over to Norway occasionally to do some teaching and then gradually got put on staff. And uh, I'm now um, 40% position out uh, in uh, NLA University in Norway. Very cool. And fortunately, you get to do all of this in English, though. I do. I do. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, the, the Norwegians are very much better at English than I am at Norwegian. So, yeah. Mm. Well, this this is a this is a universal truth. Speaking as an Englishman, we go to the continent and we just expect everybody else to speak English. If necessary, we will shout. Yeah. <laughs> well, when we were exchanging emails about what apologetic topic we might discuss today, you said that you wanted to talk about anti-verificationism. Uh, which is drawn from Lewis's essay, The Language of Religion, which I quoted at the beginning of this episode. Yeah. So 
As I mentioned in the introduction, you discuss anti-verificationism in your book, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist. So let's just talk about that a little bit first. Well, mm. Why did you write that book about C.S. Lewis and the New Atheists? And what sort of topics do you address there? Sure. Well, I, I wrote it because the publisher, my publisher, asked me to. This was actually an idea that my publisher, Pat Noster, uh, brought to me. Uh, and I could see why the publisher would be interested in on, on kind of jumping on two bandwagons at the same time, as it were, <laughs> uh, because uh, the new atheism was still much more uh, in the news uh, at the time this book came out. And C.S. Lewis is perennially of interest and writing a book on those two will catch uh, a, a broad swathe of interest. Um, but I didn't want to do it simply for the sake of jumping on a bandwagon if there wasn't actually anything interesting or useful to say from this angle. But what struck me was that today's new atheists are only really one intellectual generation on from C.S. Lewis, uh, indeed C.S. Lewis the atheist at Oxford in the 1920s, 30s, and that uh, many of Lewis's colleagues uh, as professors in Oxford University at that time, uh, later went on to be uh, the doctoral supervisors of many of today's new atheist thinkers. And so the, the thoughts and the, 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 the philosophical atmosphere of Oxford in the early 20th century has actually a very heavy influence on uh, today's neo-atheist uh, movement. Um, particularly in this area of uh, verificationism and the way in which it morphs uh, in the contemporary scene into um, what we would now call scientism. So verificationism, coming from the Vienna School of Thought and popularised in the UK by um, the British philosopher A.J. Eyre in particular, um, someone that Lewis would have known, um, in his book Language, Truth and Logic, um, they had this idea that Language is only meaningful uh, if a statement is either true by definition, um, like all bachelors are unmarried, or, uh, or uh, it is something that you can at least in principle empirically verify, that you can kind of use scientific methodology of, em of empirical investigation to check out what the statement means. So the statement, the moon is made of cheese, it's a silly statement, but it's a meaningful statement because, at least in principle, you would know how to verify it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, if you were on the, on the, the moon, you could, you know, get a spoon, try eating a bit of the moon, and if it, you know, if it tastes of <laughs> cheese and behaves like cheese, you can do all these, you know, empirical tests. What's the, what's the chemical composition of the moon? Uh, you can, uh, you could verify that in principle. So it's a meaningful statement, and you would just say, well, it's a false meaningful statement, right? But, said A.J. Eyre, the statement, a statement like uh, God exists, or indeed a statement like God does not exist, is meaningless, literally meaningless. Um, you're not actually stating anything, uh, making any claim uh, that is either true or false. It's just a meaningless claim. It's like nonsense poetry from um, Lewis Carroll or whatever. Um, now, today that morphs, that movement was fairly short-lived, actually, because 
for one major reason, um, philosophers pointed out that this rule about when language was meaningful, it's only meaningful if it's true by definition or you can empirically verify it, was not a rule that was true by definition or that could be empirically verified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's self-contradictory because it doesn't meet its own uh, criteria. Um, but scientism, which is still very much with us, again, particularly in the works of the new atheists, uh, shifts that uh, that rule from a rule about when language is meaningful to a rule about when statements uh, can be considered true or reliable. That we can only know things uh, through empirical scientific investigation, or you know, they're just true by definition. Um, and so, actually, any argument uh, against uh, verificationism of meaning in language, you can actually make a parallel argument to scientism. So, just as verificationism doesn't meet its own rule, neither does scientism. Um, the claim that we can only know things through scientific methods. Uh, is not something that we can know through scientific methods, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, parallel arguments can be made in either case. And I think it's fascinating to see this um, essay of, of, of Lewis's where he takes uh, a, a, a philosophical argument against verificationism uh, in uh, about the meaning of religious language, um, particularly by reference to um, the philosophy of language and uh, what he thinks about linguistics and so on, and, and has a, a, a sort of different uh, attack on verificationism than that than that standard attack that I just gave you. Although I, th- I think it's a very interesting, philosophically sophisticated attack upon um, verificationism. Hmm. So, is verificationism is it the same as? logical positivism because it sounds really similar right yeah you'll often see the, these names used inter- interchangeably so the, the 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 vienna circle um of thinkers um often just described as positivist thinkers or or more narrowly logical positivism uh and it is basically this sort of scientific approach to um empirical method uh, is the only way in which uh, either language can be really meaningful beyond simple you know tautology or um, that that we can know about reality we can make reliable claims about things um, it has to come through this sort of uh, narrow um, empirical uh, window rather than being open to say metaf- metaphysical argumentation uh, about things and and Lewis never bought into this sort of positivistic school. He was an old school atheist raised on old school classical Greek atheism and so on. And he took metaphysics seriously. And the fact that he took metaphysics seriously meant that he had to take things like the moral argument for God seriously. So A.J. Eyre would say um, claims about what's right and wrong or what's beautiful or or ugly. Um, They're meaningless as well as claims about um, religious claims. Um, whereas Lewis couldn't say, you know, claims about good and evil are meaningless. Um, indeed, his, he would say his argument as an atheist was that claims about evil are very meaningful and significant in that they, they give you evidence against the existence of God, right? If there were a God, he shouldn't let, shouldn't let uh, evil things happen. And clearly they do. And this is a big problem for belief in God. Now, of course, that's not an argument that a, 
a logical positivist can make, because a logical positivist like Eyre just says, you know, terms like good and evil don't have any meaning. Richard Dawkins says that language about good and evil is literally meaningless. Um, when it when you dig into Richard Dawkins's philosophy of of the metaphysics of talking about good and evil, um, he is an old school logical positivist about it, and that's why you you don't see uh, Richard Dawkins explicitly making. Um, arguments from evil uh, against god but he does make them against religion funnily enough yeah although sometimes he puts it in, in in the form of i'm you know i'm letting you the listener you the reader judge as to whether you can consider the character of god as described in the old testament as being you know good or bad or whatever um but when i recently a couple of years ago wrote um a, a book called outgrowing god question mark which was a response to his uh, recent sort of um, what's sometimes been called a sort of youth version of the God delusion, his book Outgrowing God. Um, and I wrote a, a book responding to to Outgrowing God uh, in the form of a dialogue um, between students at a university reading group who are reading Dawkins's Outgrowing God. I have them point out that, that Dawkins uh, in his Outgrowing God book puts all of his stuff about the, you know, the evils of religion and the Old Testament and so on before he comes on to talking about questions about what is the what is good and evil and how do we ground it and so on and his misunderstandings of of the moral argument um which uh, he kind of really ignores the 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 ontological the the what is it questions of good and evil um and sort of uh, sidesteps the real issues there and just as an aside, I really did like that book. Listeners, if you get it, don't expect a a very clear straw manning of the atheistic position and the Christian in there just trouncing everything. It is much more uh, balanced and, and, and reasoned and, and challenging. I, I thought that was really cool. Thank you. It does really seem, though, that if you if one adopts this positivist verification and scientism, mm. there's an awful lot about life you just can't speak about at all. Or you have to say that there is nothing to be said because those words are meaningless. Pretty much anything philosophical, pretty much anything metaphysical, uh, and and some really some of the core aspects of life, uh, some of the things that Lewis loved to think about and talk about, like you know, love, joy. You know, the the, the what can you really say about these things? Because you can't put those things in a test tube. The best you can really do is reduce them to hormones and evolutionary conditioning. Right, you can you can do a sort of debunking account of them, um, just like I would say. You know, language about you know, morals is is literally meaningless. But you know, when you say murder is wrong, what you're really doing is it, perhaps you know expressing uh, an emotion, an, an emotive kind of a, 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 a expression. Is um, sometimes we said like um, the theory that you know murder as long as like someone stepping on your foot and you go ow. <laughs> You're not really saying you shouldn't step on my foot or stepping on my foot deliberately like that is a wrong thing to do. You're just saying ow. You know I don't like I personally subjectively don't like that. It's That's, a statement about how you're feeling. Uh, yeah, and it's, it it always puts me in mind of the apology that a child gives when they don't really mean it, or even an adult, when they say, I'm sorry you felt that way by what I said. 
not I'm sorry for what I said or I'm sorry for what I did, but I'm sorry for the way that you felt. Sorry, sorry that you were upset. <laughs> <laughs> that you took umbrage at my very sensible statement. Or yeah. <laughs> hmm. Well, how does Lewis tackle this question then? He, he you mentioned AJ Eyre, and he definitely responds to him in the abolition of man and some of yeah. those ideas. Um, but more broadly with this issue and with the essay that we reference, how does Lewis approach this question? Okay, so Lewis argues that we have to approach religious language with a, a certain readiness to find meaning and points out the, the problems uh, with not having that openness. Um, by saying that um, although there are things said by religious people that can't be treated in the way we treat scientific statements, he says this isn't because they're statements of some special language. It would be truer to say that the scientific statements are in the special language. And he, uh, Lewis viewed uh, scientific and uh, what he calls poetic language as uh, two different artificial perfections of, of, of ordinary language. And he says, it seems to me to be a mistake to think that our experience in general can be communicated by precise and literal language, that is, shall we say, that the language of empirical science, and that there's a special class of experience, say, emotions or religious experience, right, which cannot uh, the, he says, the truth seems to me to be the opposite. There's a special region of experiences which can be communicated without poetic language, namely its common measurable features, but most experience cannot. He says, to be incommunicable by scientific language is, so far as I can judge, the normal state of experience. The very essence of our life as conscious beings, all day and every day, consists of something which cannot be communicated except by hints, similes, metaphors, and the use of those emotions which are pointers to it. So in other words, since the scientific language describes only measurable empirical experiences, in that kind of precise scientific language, that's the exception, Lewis is arguing, to the general rule about how language communicates our inner conscious life, mm. um, upon which, of course, science depends. So there's a very uh, useful kind of parallel passage um, from Miracles, in, in, in which makes this point very well as well. Lewis uh, writes in Miracles, he says, um, when a man says that he grasps an argument, he uses, uses a verb, grasp, which literally means to take something in his hands. But he's certainly not thinking that his mind has hands or that an argument can be seized like a gun. To avoid the word grasp, he may change the form of expression and say, I see your point. But it does not mean that a pointed object has appeared in his visual field. He may have a, a third shot and say, I follow you. But he does not mean that he is walking behind you along a road. right? So uh, the scientist, of course, um, thinks that this kind of linguistic communication of 
yeah, you know, I see what you're arguing in this paper or, um, yeah, I can see that the conclusion of your scientific argument follows from the premises of, of that argument or, or uh, yeah, I see your point now. This kind of language um, is not precise, empirically verifiable scientific language. And yet the scientist will use that language in the process of doing the science. Even if you thought that, that you know, a fourth or a fifth stab might get you around this, uh, that, that scientific language was kind of translatable into literal, precise, measurable language uh, completely. Uh, it, as a matter of fact, the scientist uses this you know poetical language all day every day uh, in how they think of themselves and how they think of science and and indeed uh, even to think that you had accurately translated the the poetic language into precise scientific language um, well how would you know that you had accurately done that unless the poetic language was something that you admitted was indeed meaningful and had a meaning that you had then accurately translated into the precise language that you're trying to translate it into um, so he's kind of pointing out that our poetical use of language which is more like the language of religion than than the language of of science say is also the kind of language that science and scientists use all day every day in our understanding of ourselves in and our thinking about science so that the objection to such language is, again, in a sense, uh, undermining itself and self-contradictory. It's like poetic language is actually our default, and the scientific language is the special case. That's right. I've heard people uh, use an analogy, which I'm sure Lewis would love because he loved analogies. It, it's sort of like when you try going looking for wood with a metal detector. The metal detector is great at the thing that it does, mm. um, but it, it's not built for that kind of thing. And so science and the, this whole idea of verificationism, it, it can fit very neatly into a certain kind of uh, intellectual inquiry, but mm. not others. And it's, and, it's, and it's sitting upon a foundation that we have to take, we have to accept from first principles, otherwise we can't say anything at all. That's right. And you can't exclude or debunk that non-scientific language by saying, you know, oh, that, that has a scientific translation or, or whatever without admitting that that poetic language actually does have a meaning hmm. um, and that you 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 know scientists uh, use that kind of poetic language in understanding themselves all day every day and in doing their science and even if you you thought you could which Lewis would argue you couldn't but even if you thought you could successfully replace that poetic language with precise scientific imp empirical language um, that doesn't debunk the poetic language because you have to think that the poetic language is meaningful to think that you have um, you know correctly translated it uh, <laughs> as it were so Lewis's argument would be that actually this this artificial restriction of language is what science is which which depends upon um, the ordinary, everyday, poet more poetic language, and he thinks you can't make that translation. Um, I would simply um, add to the argument that you know, even if you thought you could, uh, well, then you have to 
uh, admit that the poet langu- poetic language is meaningful in order to think that you've accurately translated it. Mm. So let's get really practical. What are the sorts of things that someone might say if he held to uh, this kind of positivist scientific scientific sorry mm. uh, viewpoint? And what might you, as an apologist, say, or what questions might you ask in order to help unpack that? Yeah, as I say, I think that the primary application of of this today is going to be in the field of scientism rather than verificationism, because there are very few um, verificationists about language uh, around today. Um, Certainly not a view that you're going to meet in philosophy. You're going to meet it very occasionally in the writings, say, of Richard Dawkins or or, uh, other uh, new atheists. Um, But scientism which is certainly popular with new atheists, is also popular outside of the new atheism. Scientism is, I still think, the sort of popular default view in the academy um, and in its communication to um, society at large. Um, and as I say, parallel arguments will will be able to be made if an argument is one that can be made about verificationism, since uh, scientism is just taking that that kind of positivistic approach and applying it not to meaning but to reliability of our truth claims. Then it's going to meet um, parallel uh, problems. So you you can't think that you know only empirical claims can be reliable. You would point out that you actually do rely upon very poetically. Uh, metaphorically phrased um, language and thoughts uh, in um, your everyday thinking and within scientific thinking um, that there you can't make this sort of artificial um, airtight wall between science and other ways of knowing or between scientific language and other ways of speaking uh, about things you can't uh, wall off uh, science from metaphysics um, within the, the traditional philosophical viewpoint of course science which is a fairly recent term you know would have been called a couple of hundred years ago that that was natural philosophy mm. um, philosophizing about the natural world um, uh, yes you know every discipline um, finds um, methodologies which are appropriate to the the object we're investigating but um you know basic uh, logic and and um, metaphysics and on, on ontology your, your philosophy uh, is inevitably integrated with your scientific or empirical investigation of of the natural world i once saw a little comic strip of I think it might have been St. Thomas Aquinas, but uh, mm. a Christian and uh, uh, an atheist speaking. And the atheist made the claim, philosophy isn't important. The only thing that matters is science. And the philosopher asks, why is that? And the atheist responds, well, you see science. And then the philosopher jumps in, and now you're doing philosophy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and, and the initial statement was not a scientific statement. It was a, a statement of philosophy about science. Mm-hmm. It was a philosophy of science to say, you know, only philosophy is important or uh, only philosophy gives us, gives us access to reality or, or uh, you know, only science gives us access to reality. That's, you know, 
is a philosophy of science. So you either have a philosophy of science that you've you've thought about, or you have one that you haven't thought about, and it's it's uh, much better to have the former rather than the latter. <laughs> <laughs> now we've mentioned the new atheists quite a bit. Have they actually interacted much with with Lewis's work? I can recall one talk where Hitchens tries to take apart the trilemma. Can you think of any others? Well, if you read my uh, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist, you will uh, see about everything that I could, that, that I could do to to put them into dialogue with with the, each other. You're right to say there's not very much explicit uh, dialogue. You're right to say that Christopher Hitchens explicitly interacts with Lewis on the on the trilemma. Um, which actually he finds himself um, in the sort of begrudging respect for what Lewis says there and attempts to um, say that there is um, this is a sort of a, a, a false trilemma but doesn't actually give an alternative. Richard Dawkins um, gives his fourth option to the Lewis's trilemma, which, which is to say that Jesus was just honestly mistaken, which is, you know, more risible than the... the, the um, alternatives that that uh, lewis uh, has in his his trilemma sometimes i'm mistaken about where i've left my keys um, jesus is a first century g was just honestly mistaken about whether he was god or not um, <laughs> people make honest mistakes that's not uh, <laughs> the sort of mistake that uh, means that you are um deluded uh, according to, to to dawkins um as one writer put it uh, in the god delusion Richard Dawkins argues that um, Christians are deluded for believing in the existence of God, but Jesus was not deluded for thinking that he was God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I find that pretty pretty risible, really. Um, but it's really in these the deeper philosophical roots of the New Atheist movement, in the philosophical thinking of the early to mid-20th century, um, which is the thinking that Lewis himself kind of went through or fought through as an atheist to a, to agnostic to um, some sort of vague philosophical theist before becoming a, a Christian and so on. Um, that um, is the is the interest uh, for me here in, in seeing the the roots of of today's neo atheism in this this positivist and verificationist and scientistic kind of movements of the mid twentieth century and how those play out uh, in today's neo atheism and how Lewis uh, wrestled with those movements uh, as an atheist in in the early twentieth century. Hmm. Well. As we begin to draw to a close, I wanted to give you a few minutes to talk about some of the other books that you've written on apologetics, which might be of interest to our listeners. Sure. Well, we've 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 talked a lot about C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. We've mentioned uh, my more recent uh, Outgrowing God question mark, which is, uh, uh, as the subtitle says, a beginner's guide to Richard Dawkins and the God debate, and is this dialogue format book uh, with a. a student reading group uh, reading and commenting upon um, Dawkins's uh, more recent uh, Outgrowing God book. Uh, and then recently I've started publishing a, a series of books uh, which are collections of um, essays on different themes. Uh, and the first one was uh, a little book called Apologetics in 3D, Essays on Apologetics and Spirituality. 
um, where I, I bring together a number of works that I've published uh, over recent years on uh, a holistic model of spirituality, a holistic understanding of Christian spirituality, and um, using that model to think in a more holistic way about apologetics. And I've just handed in the manuscript to um, to Whitfield Stock, my publisher, of the, the second book in this series, which is um, uh, a book of essays on natural theology, on arguments for God, which is going to be called A Universe from Someone. Uh, and then there should be another two books, hopefully, uh, in this series of essay collections to come. Um, one looking uh, at um, intelligent design theory and one looking um, again at, um, at Jesus and New Testament um, historical issues. So that's a sort of series of, of four um, themed um, books of essays um, that are coming out with Whipped and Stock. Wonderful stuff. Well, I'll make sure that there are links to all of those in the show notes. Peter S. Williams, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Dave. I hear the call for final drinks at the Mitre Pub, which was one of the places I used to go in Southampton. So to wrap things up, where can people go to find out more about you and pick up a copy of C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists and your other works? Uh, well, to find out more about me and to get various free resources, um, essays, my podcast, uh, YouTube channel, etc., um, the hub for all that is at my website at peterswilliams.com. Uh, and uh, my books are all available in various formats uh, through online sellers, uh, such as the, the ubiquitous uh, Amazon and other booksellers are available. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks again to Peter for coming on the show. Thank you all for listening for our Patreon supporters and particularly our top tier supporters, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Deborah, Anonymous, Bill, Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay. Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. And please join us next time as Apologetics Month continues, and we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.